scripture for meditation taken from the book of Genesis, and that will be chapter 13. It will be page 18 in your pew Bibles. One more brief announcement. Uh, the McClouds are not here this morning. Apparently, she Sheila has had her blood medication, uh, blood pressure medication uh, updated or upgraded. 
and she's experiencing some pretty severe heart palpitations and erratic uh, blood pressure. So they're not here today, and she will be going to the doctor, I think, tomorrow to uh, have an assessment and see what's going on. So we need to keep her in our prayers as well. As we begin our service, would you stand with us as we begin with opening prayer? Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we've come before you this morning, we come with gladness of heart that you, O Lord, are God, the one and only God, the creator of the universe, and the savior of our own souls. We thank you for this salvation that you've imparted to us, O Lord. But yet we pray with pensive hearts at times that you would take take heed of our unsaved loved ones, that you would woo them to you, that you would breathe the breath of life into them. And yes, Lord, even if necessary, that you break their will and spirit, break their hearts, and bring them to themselves, that they would understand that without you, O Lord, in their lives, they are destined for hell and destruction for eternity. We thank you, Father, for this house that we worship in, for the like-minded brothers and sisters who come together and praise and worship you. And we thank you for our pastor, Lord, that you have put in this place at this time to lead us spiritually, guide us, and instruct us. Give the pastor a strong voice this day. Give him the confidence and courage to speak out against the the ill will of those who would put us under. Strengthen his heart. Strengthen his soul and his conviction. Lord, as the words that he puts out, convict the hearts of the lost, but reinforce those of us, Lord, who are within your grasp. We thank you for the good report for mercy. As she comes home, Lord, we pray that her trip would be uneventful, that she would rest and be able to be comfortable and that you would give comfort and peace to the spirits of Jess and Dan as well as they also recover from this ordeal. Prepare their hearts for what is coming in the main surgery, that your hand would be in it, that you would guide the, the knives and the blades, that you would guide even the thoughts of those surgeons, nurses, anesthesiologists, and technicians who are going to be involved in this surgery coming up, Lord, that your will would be done in all of this, and that whatever happens, Lord, be it good or be it not to our own liking, Father, we would still have the presence to give you the honor and the praise and the glory and the thank you for being in her life. Be with us now in the presence of your Holy Spirit, that he guide us and comfort us and encourage us in song and worship and in the lesson that is going to be given by our pastor. Protect us, O Lord. Be with us. Guide our hearts and our thoughts. Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. 
morning. Will you take your red hymnal and turn to 184, 184 in the red? with my soul. Yes, I'm sure it is. 493 in the brown. And why this song? You're just thinking of it today. It's a good song to think about. 493 in the brown. Yes. 
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 1 through 9. And you'll find that on page 1526 in your pew Bible. When you find that, please stand with us. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 9. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Father in heaven, we pray that you would use this to pierce the hearts of the lost and make them understand that without you in their lives, Lord, their whole existence is futile and destined for hell and destruction for eternity. Bless these verses to the heart, Lord. Watch over and protect us this hour. In the name of Christ, amen. Will you take your brown hymnal this time and turn to number 357, 357 in the brown? Tales of his love, though he has come. 
In our series, A Living Faith, we have learned that God has deposited saving faith in our souls when we were brought to repentance and salvation. Then, with true faith gifted to us, we draw on that not only in salvation, but to live the Christian life day in and day out for the rest of our lives. Last week we looked at faithful fathers using Abraham as the biblical model. He was called from a pagan culture and an idolatrous family. Even with his little faith, he obeyed and he left for a land of promise that God would afterwards give him give to him and his descendants. He had faith to live life in the present. Though a very wealthy man, he lived his life on earth in a nomadic style, moving about from pasture land to pasture land in tents. The scripture says he was looking for the city whose architect and builder was God. He also exhibited future faith. He saw that city with lasting foundation by faith as he peered into the future and believed that God had prepared a heavenly city for him and all who trust in Christ. It was also a miraculous faith because though reproductively dead, he believed that God would grant him and Sarah a son. It was also a tenacious and unflinching faith when God commanded him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice to God. He obeyed to the point where God had to stop him. He obeyed believing that God could and would raise Isaac from the dead because all God's promises to Abraham were to come through Isaac. Think about that. I, I just been thinking that on this week, you know, God tells him to slay his son, and he's thinking, now wait a minute. It's through Isaac that the promises are to come. So if I slay him, how's that going to work? Well, by faith, he said, well, God will just have to raise him from the dead. That's tremendous faith when you think about it. He's going to obey God and do something that just comes up tilt in one's minds. How, how can I slay my own son when it's through Isaac that the gifts are supposed to come? Well, he thought about it, and the New Testament scripture says, he concluded, oh, God will just have to raise him from the dead. That's tremendous faith. Tremendous faith. Well, today we move away from mothers for Mother's Day, fathers from Father's Day, and we come to children. Children. Did you know that there is such a thing as Children's Day? It's today, this Sunday. Actually, Children's Day predates Mother's Day and Father's Day celebrations dating back to 1856 
When some of the New England churches, the Universalists, the Methodists, the Episcopalians, and the Presbyterians, and the Congregationalists all designated the second Sunday of June as Children's Day. In more modern times, President Clinton proclaimed Children's Day to be October 9th, or excuse me, October 8th. And later, President George W. Bush moved it back to the second Sunday in June to comply with the historical dates of their original observances. What is interest to us this morning is whether a child can come to know Christ as Savior and live for Him at an early age. Or is salvation and living by faith only for the adults? Well, we note from our text the fact that God's command to parents to teach their children of God presupposes that they can learn of God. I mean, why would God command parents to do that? We looked at these scriptures extensively the other week, so I'll just highlight some of the dominant themes. For example, God chose Abraham saying, here's what he said, I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Genesis 18, verse 19. Moses, in rehearsing the law of Israel, said, These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you are at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9. So here you have a text that talks about putting placards of Scripture up all around your house. And uh, you can go into any Christian bookstore and you can find these placards already nicely painted for you. All you got to do is put them up. Solomon put it this way, My son, keep your father's commands and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them upon your heart forever. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. For these commands are a lamp. This teaching is a light. And the corrections of discipline are the way to life, Proverbs 6, 20 and following. Notice the three L's there. A lamp, a light, and life. All from the scriptures, those three things. Coming to the New Testament, Paul says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6 and verse 4. And from Timothy's example, this training done by his mother and his grandmother had begun at an early age. We are told 
As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, Paul's instruction uh, to Timothy. Now, the implication of all these scriptures, and many more that could be cited, is that since God commands parents to teach their children the things of God from the Word of God, then children obviously must be able to respond to these truths on their level. I mean, why command parents to do something with regard to teaching their children if their children can't handle it? That just doesn't make sense. God is not into playing games with us. There's purpose, there's resolve behind every command. His heart goes out to children in the gospel as well as to the adults. And in fact, Jesus indicates in our text that children do believe in him as Savior and do have a proclivity to trust him in faith. This is so much the case that child faith is put forth by Jesus as the model of faith. It's a model of faith. Matthew's account seems to indicate that the disciples simply had a question for Jesus. Verse 1. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But the parallel texts of Mark and Luke paint a more sinister scenario. We read, they came to Capernaum where he was in the house and he asked them, uh, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had been arguing about who among them was the greatest. Mark 9, verse 33 and 34. Or Luke's account says, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Luke 9, verse 46. So the disciples at this period in their training were all into themselves. They were vying within the group for supremacy to be the boss, to be the leader, like the vice regent under Christ. They did not want to take orders, they wanted to give orders. There was no humility of heart, no compassion for the other person, no sense of letting the others step into the spotlight and be recognized for their skill. No, they were pushing and shoving, metaphorically, in position to get the position at the front of the line so that they could be the boss. I like the phrase from Barbara Streisand's song, People. She puts it this way, acting more like children than children. This was the disciples. So this is what they were arguing about. And when Jesus asked them about their argument, they were so ashamed that they didn't answer him. But he knew 
their thoughts. So we read, he called a little child and had him stand among the disciples. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, verses 2 through 4. This is really revealing. All these gospel writers include this thought. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you, he is the greatest. Luke 9, verse 48. When we read these texts, there's some sobering conclusions drawn from just these few, very few verses. The disciples who already think of themselves as citizens of God's kingdom are told by Jesus, I'm reading here, unless you change and become like little children, you, my disciples, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. Think of this. All this spiritual arm wrestling that they were engaged in to see who could win the dominant position in the kingdom of God is in fact an indictment against them that they are in jeopardy of not even entering the kingdom of heaven because they are guilty of the damning sin of pride and lack of humility. The change Jesus was indicating that must take place in their lives is spelled out in verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Yes, greatest in, but more importantly, in, in. That's where they're at. Not outside, thinking that they are in when they are not. But you see, the disciples were sidetracked, wrestling with subordinate issues. Greatest in was not as important as being in. Being in. What a challenge to their pride and their lack of humility. Jesus was saying to them, you know, the kids got legs up on you. They're ahead of you in this whole thing. You're out here looking in. 
They're in looking out. They're already there. They're in the kingdom. You're not. You're kind of in stargazers. Trying to puff yourself up. See if you can't be the boss over somebody else. He goes on. A second conclusion. Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Wow. So just in case the disciples did not have a grasp of the true nature of lordship, of what it meant to be the boss, and they didn't know what that was supposed to be, Jesus identified his leadership role with that of a humble child. Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Earlier on, Jesus had pointed out to his followers, take my yoke upon you, learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11, verse 29 and 30. Crushing people by brandishing your power and your authority was not Jesus' idea of leadership. And it was a theme that Jesus was to repeat again and again because pride was ever a problem with these men. Think about the whole foot-washing scene of John 13, which arose because the disciples themselves were too proud to serve one another as a lowly bondservant. I'm not watching his feet. That's a, that's a slave's job. And so we read Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he, there's no identity crisis as far as Jesus is concerned. He knew who he was. He knew who he was. And he knew where he was going. I'm still reading. So he put off, excuse me, he got up from his meal and took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him, John 13, verse 3 and following. And he gives the lesson of the event. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And I tell you the truth. 
No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. John 13, verse 13 and following. What is he saying? He's saying to act as Lord over other others is not the whole idea of being great in the kingdom of God. You will have to become servant to all. You will have to have the humility to do that which is epitomized in a child. When my grandchildren were very young, they would come over to visit Dee and me and they would bug Grandma Dee to be able to help get on the meal or set the table or run an errand, maybe take out the trash. They were full of the servant spirit. We didn't have to say a word to them about that. When I was growing up, my dad was always involved in some kind of project, working on his truck, sorting scrap, building something from wood. And I would be underfoot all the time asking, can I help? Can I help? Can I help? I drove him nuts. It was not unusual. It was normal. Can I help? Children do vie for the me first position, but we teach them to share, to take turns, to deal with their desire to be first, but we generally do not have to compel them to assume a servant role. So Jesus in verse 2 says, Become like little children. Oh, that is, they're already in a state of humility. They're already ready for service by virtue of their smallness, their inexperience, their willingness to learn, their desire to please, all of those plus, 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 plus. And in verse 4, Jesus identifies this trait as humility. Humble themselves like a little child. You disciples of mine need to humble yourself. You need to learn humility. So the first thing is to show that children have a serving spirit something that the disciples didn't have, and that was the spirit of humility. Secondly, children can exercise saving faith in Christ. Verse 6 and 7. 
If anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for that person to have a large millstone hung around his or her neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Do you ever think Jesus would say something that horrific to his disciples? He goes on. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. And again, verse 10. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. And Matthew adds, verse 11, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Consider verse 14, which is in all of the manuscripts. It reads, In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Matthew 18, verse 14. In these texts, brethren, Jesus is not identifying two ways of salvation. He's not doing that. He's not saying there's a salvation for children and there's a salvation for adults. No, but he is establishing the truth that children, as with adults, may possess and exhibit saving faith in him these little ones who believe in me, is the way he puts it. Verse 6. And these little ones have representative angels in heaven who always have access to the Father. Verse 10. Hebrews 1 verse 14 says, Are not all angels a ministering spirit sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Wow. It's like the lost sheep, one in a hundred, whom the good shepherd searches for in the wilderness. And in the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Verse 14. Eternally secure in Christ, just like any adult who believes. Does this not teach us that children are not, they are not, second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. In fact, do they not have some spiritual things going for them, like a servant heart and a humble spirit, which adults, because of pride, struggle to obtain? Are not children generally eager to learn? 
They're teachable. Willing to believe unless faced with hypocrisy in their mentors. And because of that, time sometimes has its effect on our kids. Time. We read from Hebrews, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Hebrews 3, verse 13. And we learned in a previous study that children are not born innocent. They are born sinners, but there is yet a pliability in their personalities when young that disappears with age as sin's deceitfulness hardens them. And sin does this to all of us. This is why we teach children the things of God while they are young. Because the agnostic, atheist, and the unbelieving world takes a whack at them through sinful solicitation and lies and anti-God instruction. And before the hard knocks of bad experiences make them cynical, we want to teach them the truth. And a child of faith, like any adult of faith, is protected from the wiles of the devil through the shield of faith. In fact, from our text, it appears that Christ is particularly protective of believing children and gives stern warnings to anyone who would try to destroy their faith or hinder their allegiance to Christ. Verse 6. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him or her to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. He goes on. Woe to the world because of things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man or the woman through whom they come. Matthew 18, verse 6 and 7. And then verse 10 warns, See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. Sad to say, this too was an ongoing problem in Jesus' disciples. In the very next chapter, 
can hardly believe this. After Jesus has spoken these things to them and rebuked them very strongly, in the next chapter, this incident arose. Let me read it for you. Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and to pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. And Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. He went on his way. Matthew 19, verse 13 and following. Mark's account is even stronger. He writes, People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. But the disciples rebuked them, the parents. And when Jesus saw this, Mark says, he was indignant. You could just see the smoke rising from our Lord. He was indignant. And he said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't enter them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. Ooh. And he took the child, children in his arms, and he put his hands on them, and he blessed them. Mark chapter 10. 13 and 4. Luke's account gives these clarifications. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. They rebuked the parents again. But Jesus called the children to him. So he just bypassed the disciples, went directly to the children. And then he said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Luke 18, verse 15 and 16. Now, in light of these injunctions by Jesus... It's not wise to tell little children that they're too young to know the Lord. Why would we do that? When Jesus even mentions babies being brought to him. I get it, we're cautious and observant when dealing with the testimony of young children because of 
the tendency to copycat the older siblings. But let us not squash genuine faith, which will evidence itself in real repentance for the sins of youth, lies and deception and bullying and self-centeredness and disobedience to parents, etc., etc. It is where there is true change of behavior, you have true faith. That's always the test. (laughs) I know many adults who claim to know Christ as Savior, but they have no change in behavior. And they're just fooling themselves being self-deceived. Churches are full of people. Jesus acknowledged children who believed in him, and he warned us not to hinder them in their faith or to cause them to sin. So in closing, let me give you some examples of believing children. Samuel, who became God's prophet and priest. Samuel, you remember, was the miracle child of Hannah and Elkanah in answer to Hannah's prayer. And in keeping her promise, she dedicated Samuel to God's ministry and brought him as a boy to live with Eli the priest, saying, Now I give him to the Lord, for his whole life he will be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. First Samuel 1. Verse 28, the deal was that Hannah made, she was barren. Try as they would, this couple could not have children. So Hannah prayed, Lord, if you just give me a child, give me a son, and I make this promise, I'll give him back to you. And he can serve you as a priest, as a prophet. God took her up on that deal. While Eli's wicked sons were using their priestly office to rob God of the choice portions of the offerings, and while they fornicated with the servant women who ministered at the tabernacle, we read, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod, that is the priest's garment. 1 Samuel 2, verse 18. Verse 26 says, And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. And when Eli was warned of God that because of his sin and the sin of his sons, which he allowed to continue unchecked, he was warned that they would all die in a day, when one day you're all going to die. With this added explanation, 
I will raise up for myself, God said, a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and my mind. I will firmly establish his house and he will minister before my anointed one, before my, my anointed one always. First Samuel 2, verse 35. Next chapter we read, The Lord came and stood there calling, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant is listening. And what followed was God's full disclosure of the judgment he was going to bring on Eli and his sons for their sin, which Samuel reiterated to Eli the very next morning. In other words, God was already beginning to speak through this boy, Samuel, as his prophet. Chapter 3, verse 19 says the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel recognized that Samuel was attested, that is, he was recognized as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. So God said to Samuel, I'm going to make you a prophet and a priest, and immediately started doing that, even though Eli was the priest, and his sons served with him. So God immediately turned away from Eli and his sons to Samuel. It was Samuel who delivered Israel from the Philistines after the ark had been stolen later anointed Saul as Israel's first king. It was Samuel who later still anointed David as Israel's most godly king. His legacy in his own words are, are this, I will teach you the way that is good and right, but be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all of your heart. Consider your great things that were done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. 1 Samuel 12, verse 22 and following. He told it true. Samuel told it true. Very prophet that the people needed to hear. Verse 2 reads, Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl, from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him, your husband, of the leprosy. So here we have another one. A child speaking out the truth concerning the fact that this general was suffering from leprosy 
And she tells Naaman's wife, I have a solution. Uh, there's this prophet in Israel, and he can heal your husband. And they, this is a definitive statement. It's not ifing, it's not guessing. And she says it this if only my master, Naaman, uh, would see the prophet who is in Samaria, that prophet, he would cure him, your husband, of his leprosy. Do you see any equivocation there? I don't see it. She doesn't say, well, you know, if, he, if your husband does the right thing, if, you know, if he... Does this or does that? He'll be healed. No, the little girl just says, you go see this prophet and he'll heal your husband. So, Naaman went to his master, told him what the little girl of Israel said, and his master, the king, said, by all means, go. The king of Aram replied, And I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left. Second Kings 5, verse 2 and 5. So without money, without price, without great works of benevolence, Naaman, after some reluctance, obeyed Elisha. What was the problem? Well, Elisha says, Go there to the river Jordan and dip seven times in that and you'll come out healed. <laughs> you remember the story. The river Jordan wasn't exactly the cleanest river in Palestine. In fact, it was dirty. I don't know if there was sewage running in it or it was just muddy all the time or whatever. But Naaman protested. Because he said, in effect, look, from in my country, there's a lot of beautiful streams, nice, clear, fresh, pristine water. Why can't I go there and do this dipping dip? And, to, and you want me to go to the dar garbage dump, take a dip there. And it was a servant that said to Naaman, you know, if the prophet had asked you to do something really hard and difficult, wouldn't you have done it? Now that he's asked you to do something very easy, very simple, you're bulking. You're digging in. He needed to hear that word from his servant. So he agreed to go. And you know the story. Came out of the water. Yeah, that muddy, yucky water. Cleansed of his leprosy. A little girl. Gave him the good news. 
Or consider Joseph. He was but a boy when his older brothers sold him into slavery out of sheer jealousy. Reuben's own words, he went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Genesis 37, verse 3. So they devised this elaborate scheme to fool Jacob, the father, by dipping Joseph's coat in animal blood, claiming that, oh, you know, Dad, uh, we, we went to find Joseph out in the field and some ferocious beast has killed him in, in the pasture land and, and here's his beautiful coat that you made for him. And Sorry, Dad, it's all full of blood. Some wild beast must have devoured him. And we read, meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Genesis 37, verse 36. Unbeknownst to Jacob, the boys had already sold Joseph to Midianite traders traveling through the land and they were heading for Egypt. Oh, this is good. We'll sell Joseph to them. We'll take him to Egypt. Bye-bye, Joseph. We won't have to put up with you anymore. And off they went. While there in Egypt, Joseph was tempted to advance himself through a sexual favor to Potiphar's wife, and he refused, saying, How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Genesis 39.9 These are young men, young women, standing for the truth of God's word. There were others. In the New Testament, we have Mary, who was a girl of about 15 years old when she agreed to become the mother of the Lord, saying, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Luke 1, verse 38. Just a child herself. Think also of the boy who gladly gave up his few loaves of bread and fish to Christ that a whole multitude could be fed. He didn't know that was going to happen. Think of Timothy, whose youth seemed to be a drawback to his acceptance as a pastor. Yet Paul could write of him in his in sending a letter to the church at Philippi. I hope in the Lord Jesus Christ to send Timothy to you soon. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with a father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Philippians 7, excuse me, Philippians 2, verse 19 and 5. And we can think of Rhoda, little servant girl found praying with the church for Peter's release 
from prison when he was in prison. So on this Children's Day, which our country celebrates, there is a charge here for believing children. Number one, obey your parents. The mark of unbelieving children is disobedience to parents. Named as a sin worthy of death in the Romans 1 list of deadly sins. Chapter Romans 1 verse 30. So if God has come into your life and saved you from your sin, a new life of faith will result in compliance with Ephesians 6 verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. What about if your parents do not know the Lord? We do have that in history. Well, you're still required to obey them in all the areas wherein they do not ask you to sin. This is your testimony to them of a life that's ruled by Christ. You obey when unsaved parents give you instructions to do as long as they're not infringing upon the truth of God's word. You set the example. You prove that your heart is of a different nature than maybe the brothers and sisters that are in your family. Don't know. God explained it this way to Saul. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. 1 Samuel 15, verse 23. Likewise, rebelling against parents is to rebel against God who commands you to obey them in what is right. And what about this one? Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. Ephesians 6, verse 2. Would you ever think that God would connect that two of those things together? You want to live a long life, young people? God is saying, okay, obey your parents. Honor them. Honor? What's that? This is the same word used of Jesus' attitude towards his father, when he said to the crowd of people, I honor my father, John 8, verse 49. Same word in Greek. Christ has promised, my father will honor the one who serves me, John 12, verse 26. He warned, 
honor your father, honor your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. He's quoting the law. That's found in Leviticus 20 and verse 9. You can curse your parents to their face or under your breath, and it's still the same wicked sin of which you must repent and learn instead to honor them as your parents, whether you think they deserve it or not. If the problem is that you do not like taking orders, think of Christ himself. I read this stuff in Scripture, and it just boggles my mind. This is what he says. The Lord and Savior, as a boy, we are told, he went down to Nazareth with them, his parents, and was obedient to them. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Luke 2, 51-52. Obedient children who honor their parents are loved by God, but also by the observing public who appreciate their respect for their parent and those in authority. If you are a son and daughter here this morning who does not know Jesus as Savior, the charge is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's no need for you to wait till you're older, to wait till you become an adult. Waiting can prove hurtful. Waiting can harden your heart against God. Waiting can turn your eyes and your heart and your ears towards things of the devil who promises the world and delivers destruction and misery and death. And he was a liar, Jesus said, from the beginning. Can't believe a word he tells you. How does the world, or how does the devil lie to us? Through the philosophies of the world. The world is his realm, you know. The scripture talks about that. He rule, he's the ruler of the prince and power of the air. That's who he is. So the wrong teachings may come to you through education, through reading certain books, through friends who give you their advice, which isn't very helpful and very profitable at all. Many different sources to direct you away from the truth of God. May none here live such a wasted life and die so empty-handed and alone because that's what's going to happen. Jesus says, Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself Take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it. 
but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it, says Jesus, if a man should gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very soul? <laughs> what kind of a plus is that? He goes on. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes to his, in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Luke 9, verse 23. The world applauds what God condemns and it scorns what God approves. Stand with God, young people. None who stand with him die losers. Our Lord, we're thankful and appreciative of the truth of the word heard this morning. Thank you for the examples of these young children. Timothy, Rhoda. Others. The little girl who talked to Naaman's wife. Samuel as a young boy. Thank you for their example because it teaches us that yes, even children can come to know Christ as Savior. And in that position, they can have a tremendous results in the influences they bring upon others, maybe even including their own unbelieving parents. Wow, wouldn't that be tremendous? My child led me to know Christ. That happens in our world with the gospel. And I'm thankful for it. Lord, bless these truths to our hearts. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Now our hymn, closing, is number 58 in the hymn. 5-8. Fifty-eight in the brown hymnal. Let's stand as we sing.
our Lord, the hymn writer, has captured the reality that we need to keep in mind. The world in which we live is your world. It's true that Satan is the prince and the power of the air, and he has usurped the authority that he emboldens upon our world, its wickedness, its lies, its deceit. Yes, he's having his heyday of influence. But even with all of that going on, the death sentence is already written upon him. The scripture says that he roars about like a lion seeking someone to devour. Why? Because he knows his time is short. Oh. Oh. He already knows. He's defeated. He already knows. He lost. He knows he's doomed to destruction. Oh, and that means he's trying to try his hardest to take everyone with him that he can. Oh God, defeat this evil one by granting us faith and obedience in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins. And I pray that we will believe it and accept his word of grace. Save our children. Grant them the faith they don't have and the repentance they don't want to give up because they love their sin. I love my sin too. Every person loves their sin. But sin will damn us all the way to hell and we need to repent of it and Christ needs to pay for it because we can't pay for it. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to see that and to love Jesus very, very much for what he has done for us. Thank you that even a little child, not just adults, but even little children can come to know Christ. He says so. He praises the children before his disciples to make sure that they know not to say or do anything evil towards those little children that believe in him. I pray, Lord, that our children will come to know you at an early age. Why? So much better, so much happier to live a life for Jesus than to waste your life in all kinds of wicked sin and then only to be saved maybe as an adult. Maybe we as young children will sin our grace time away and there won't be any grace for us in the day of judgment. We can't, we can't guarantee that. So I pray that we will repent. Grant us repentance and faith this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. Have a good day.